Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Neil Adortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you are tuned into our finance series, a new series that we have done this year to kind of help you all be financial savvy as well. And this episode, I think, is actually a pretty important episode and filled with a lot of good information. And what we're going to talk about is finding financial advisors. I know if you're in residency or in any type of training, you always get these emails inviting you out to a fancy dinner with somebody with 18 different designations at the end of their name. And so today we're actually going to talk a little bit about how to actually find a financial advisor and what they kind of do. And a little bit about our guest today. So this is going to be our episode featuring David Mandel. Uh, a little bit about David Mandel. He's actually an attorney in the law office of David Mandel PC and the principal of the nationally well-known wealth management OJM Group LLC. Mr. Mandel is also the author of more than 15 books written specifically for doctors. These include the past book, Wealth Protection Planning for Orthopedic Surgeons and Sports Medicine Specialists, and his most recent wealth planning for the Modern Physician Residency to Retirement, which is also the title of a podcast Mr. Mandel hosts in his third season. His expertise from these books has allowed him to write articles in over 100 publications, including AAOS Now and Orthopedics Today, where he and orthopedic surgeon Dr. Sanji Bhatia have an ongoing monthly column called Forward Thinking. He has also appeared as an authority on television, including Fox and Bloomberg TV. Mr. Mandel has addressed many of the nation's lead medical conferences, including the American Osteopathic Academy of Orthopedics, the American Section of the International College of Surgeons, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the Ortho Summit, the American Association of Orthopedic Executives, and numerous others. Mr. Mandel holds a bachelor degree with honors from Harvard University. His law degree is from the UCLA School of Law, and he earned an MBA from UCLA's Anderson School of Management. In this episode, David shared about finding the right financial advisor, and he shared some informative points on queries you may have about finances, such like what are the three key elements of wealth planning that are applicable for young physicians, even us in training, the importance of savings, finding a financial advisor that's right for you, how financial advisors get paid, what is a fiduciary, and much, much more. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. David, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. I really appreciate being here and speaking to your audience and hopefully they'll learn one or two things from me today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this talk because this is always one of those age old talks, at least our standpoint of view, like finding a financial planner, you never know really where to start at and, and who to talk to. And you always get about 10,000 different emails to your email. And you don't know who to listen to. So yeah, uh, hopefully this should, <laughs> should help some people out. I hope so. I think it will. 
before we hop right into it, we'll kind of do a little bit of background. David, you're an attorney, you're an author, you founded a wealth management firm. Can you kind of just give us a little background into you, your career path, and, and how you interact with physicians today? Sure. So you got to go back to ninth grade biology. We were studying, I think, the worm or something. It just didn't connect with me. You know, it just wasn't my cup of tea science at that point. Since then, I've gotten very interested in different areas of science, but I say that because my father, my brother, and my grandfather are all physicians. So for me to kind of figure out that I wasn't going to go into the science and pre-med path was important. My parents said I used to argue a lot, so I guess, and I was always kind of interested in writing and speaking, debate, things like that. So the idea of going to law school after college kind of made sense, and then I got an MBA as well out of UCLA and knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, wasn't exactly sure, kind of took a while to kind of figure that out. But while I was in school, my father was a radiologist, was very concerned about liability. And I know we're going to do another podcast episode on asset protection. But while I was in law school, I started to learn about that because he went to somebody who was a well-known attorney, wrote books, et cetera. And so I ended up interning with them and working with them and eventually kind of built a law practice around asset protection and tax and estate planning. And the problem with being an attorney, a lot of great things about it, but in in these areas anyway, most physicians would work with me. And I had written a book in 1998 called The Doctor's Asset Protection Guide and then some other books and was writing and speaking a lot. And they would only work with me for like a month or so to get what they needed done. And then I really wouldn't deal with them anymore. And I really wanted to have longer term relationships than that. Since I had an MBA and had connections and my business partner, Jason O'Dell, he had been written up as one of the best financial planners for financial advisors for physicians and medical economics. And he was at all these conferences and I'd been 10 years in law practice and was speaking at all these conferences and writing, et cetera. I decided I was going to leave the full-time practice law and create a wealth management firm that was really specific for physicians that was doing some things that I didn't see anyone else in the market doing. And we've done that and have now we're 15 years into OJM Group and have positions in all 50 states and a bunch of foreign countries. And I think are really one of the preeminent wealth management firms for physicians. And so I still have my law practice. It's a law corporation. I deal with some older clients that I just can't get rid of because they like <laughs> me and I like them, which is fine. But I generally don't take on any new clients in my law practice at this point. So But it's always been, since I started, day one, a physician-focused career. And that just comes from, I make the joke when I give talks that I worked on my parents' will, and I realized that I wasn't helping physicians, I wouldn't be in the will. And there's some truth to that. So my younger brother's a cardiologist, my father's a radiologist who's still doing a little bit of part-time practice, mostly retired. And then my grandfather was kind of a dentist and one of the first like oral maxillofacial surgeons going back all the way back to the 1920s and 30s. So yeah, yeah. that's how I got to where I am today. Yeah, that's awesome. Glad you've been able to build this and grow it. You mentioned you have clients all across the world now. You mentioned you have clients all across the world, national clients, international clients, and you work mostly with physicians kind of looking at at wealth planning. And, And on that same topic of wealth planning, there are a lot of young physicians that listen to this show. There are a lot of residents there are a lot of fellows and people that are just starting off their practice. Let's say what are three key elements of wealth planning that could be applied to this kind of, I guess, younger generation of us in training. And there may be some older people listening to this too. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to count you out, but what are just some things on, on wealth planning? 
Yeah. So three lessons I would give, and this could be certainly applied to docs into practice would be, but especially for the young docs, because a lot of young docs like you think, I don't have anything, but you do have something and you have something that's actually worth millions of dollars, which is your license to practice medicine. Now, I know you've got med students on here too, so they're on their path, but that's an asset and that's worth a a fair amount. And even though someone has a, a lot of debt to do that, that asset is still there. So number one, I always tell clients, protect what you have. And for a physician, especially orthopedists and orthopedic surgeons who are going to rely on their hands and all physicians rely on their eyes, they got to go to the office. Even my father is a radiologist. He might not have to see a patient because it's all te- a lot of telemedicine, but he still has to see the study or see the, the x-ray and all that kind of stuff. So For young docs, when they get to the right point, making sure they protect their ability to practice medicine, i.e. disability insurance, is crucial, okay? Because if you get disabled and with over 1,500 physician clients that we have at OJM Group, we have a number who have become disabled, partially or totally. They would tell you, and it's very clear, that their decision to get good disability insurance and the right type and the right amount, et cetera, was the most important financial decision of their life. It's not even close because they can't do surgery anymore. Maybe they can't even practice medicine anymore, but now they have tax-free monthly income for the rest of their life till they're 65, guaranteed, right? And so that's number one, protect what you have. Number two is save if you can. This is pretty simple. Time value of money, kind of economics 101. Any dollars you can save in your 20s or 30s, the you in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and maybe more We'll be very glad you did that because, and there's some good examples in our book, and I'll talk about our books in a minute, but so save if you can. And number three, work with an advisor or not. So most, I think, successful physicians are working with uh, financial advisors, but you don't have to. And we can talk about that uh, in a second as well. Okay. And so I definitely agree with the disability insurance. I I wasn't a very financial savvy guy coming into residency. But the one thing I did get intern year was disability insurance. Okay. And unfortunately, I, I I know a couple of people personally that have went through residency and then finished and then became disabled as soon as they finished residency mm. of an unknown illness. And unfortunately, I know a couple other young surgeons, one that actually passed away from an unknown illness, uh. very young, under 40 years old. So you never know what can happen. And I think that's, that's right. very, very solid very solid advice. And I definitely like those, those three elements you're talking about. So you, you mentioned at the end of, of, of kind of those three elements that finding a financial advisor is something that at least most wealthy or most well-off physicians are doing. Now, you also said or not. So what do you mean by the or not? Is, is, is it needed? Do you have to have an advisor? Right. So no, you don't. I mean, I think there's no rule. There's there's no law that says you have to have an advisor. And certainly people listening to me say, hey, you're biased. You are an advisor. So of course right. you're going to say everybody needs one. But and this, the other thing I wanted to point out is that everything I'm talking about today is in our books or most everything. And all of your listeners can get any of our books absolutely for free. No catch there. The hard copy, Kindle version, iPad version, whatever works for them. Assuming the show notes or someplace, you'll be able to give them a link mm-hmm. that they can use. We'll use a we'll use a nailed it twenty three code and use that code. You can go on our site, get any of our books for free. And I, I mentioned that because a lot of what we're going to talk about as we go through this comes from not only wealth planning for the modern physician, which is our newest and I think best book for docs. We've done about fifteen over the 
last 25 years or so, but also from Wealth Management Made Simple, where literally the first chapter is what is a stock, what is a bond, all the way down, how do advisors get paid and and all of that. And we have a whole section in that book about the fact that you can do it yourself. And there are docs who do it themselves. There's a pretty popular website that many of your listeners may know of, which is, well, what is it? White Coat Investor. White Coat Investor, yeah. And there's a big do-it-yourself theme there. And it really depends how how much you're going to do it, right? I mean, you could do everything yourself. I mean, I, I don't know any, but I am sure there are physicians who are doing their own tax returns, who might do their own will, go online to LegalZoom and do their own will, right? And that is out there because with the internet and all of the various sites and videos, et cetera, you can get up to speed on a lot of areas of finance law and tax that you just couldn't in the past, right? And nobody is going to have more at stake and more to gain or lose than you, right? right. I mean, you're going to care more about your money, about your tax return than anybody else. So I understand that. Now, we work at OJM Group with 1,500 physicians. That's a spectrum, right? So we have clients where we are, we're doing everything for them, where they're a financial manager, we manage their assets, the whole thing. They come to us with kind of every first financial question. Then we have others where we're just doing a piece of it. We might manage their money, but we're not doing anything around taxes or, or we didn't advise them or estate planning. Or we're or managing part of their portfolio because they love investments, they love to do it, and they're doing another piece of it, okay? So it is a spectrum. It doesn't, it's not all or nothing. I'm going to use an advisor. I'm not. It could be as I'm going to use an attorney or I'm going to use a CPA. Uh, I'm going to use a financial advisor for X or just an insurance person to help me find the right products for Y. And your listeners will all have to make that decision on how much they delegate. I have a podcast also. We're going to have you on at the Wealth Planning for the Modern Physician podcast. And that has mostly docs well into practice all the way from their 30s to 70s. And I ask the question every time of the doc, how, where are you on the scale? How much do you delegate and how much do you do yourself? And a lot of them are pretty heavy delegators because they want to spend their time at their highest and best use. And that may be seeing patients and spending time with their family. And if it's not one of those two things, they want to try to outsource it. But I have others who are really passionate and are really, let's say, interested in investments. They're really into stocks or they're really into private investments or rental real estate or crypto, whatever it is. And they and, and even though we're working with them, they might say, listen, this piece I'm doing myself and I always want to do it, but you can do this piece and you can have a good look at the whole thing. So it's a long-winded way of saying that your listeners are going to each have to make that decision on how much they want to delegate and how much they want to take on themselves. And there's no right answer there. Right. So if you're Again, just like you just said, it kind of depends on the person themselves. So if you're somebody that's more you like control, not control, but you, you want to put aside the time to learn all these different aspects of finance and and stay up to date with any new things that come out, because we know things change. It was a, what, a tax act in 2017 and there are different things each year. And it's a it kind of a moving ball. But if you are dedicated enough and you want to do that, you can do it on your own versus you could hire an advisor. And, and and we'll touch a little bit late, a little bit later, I guess, on how to find different advisors and how they get paid or, or their or their fees and the different kind of categories. So I think that's that's really important as well. And you mentioned you have over fifteen hundred clients. And are you are you finding it that physicians are finding it 
easier to trust <laughs> to uh, trust financial advisors or find somebody that you trust or or what? And then the second aspect to that is what tips do you have to find uh, somebody that you actually uh, uh, trust? Like what, what's one of your rules uh, when you're trying to advise a physician when they're trying to find an advisor? Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. I don't think it's easy. It's not easy to find and advise your trust. And especially in the financial world, I mean, this is true of any professional, right? The patient's trying to find a physician they can trust, right? I mean, how do you do that? Well, you you might ask other people that, right? And see who they're using. You might do research online and find people who are experts because trust can break down into a number of different things. Trust that they can do the right job, right? I mean, one element of trust is, is somebody professionally competent or professionally excellent, right? If I'm going to a surgeon, my wife had hip surgery. I have so many orthopedic clients. I went to someone, all they do is hips. They're one of the national, international experts on hips, right? And hip arthroscopy is what she needed. So that's one issue, okay? And in medicine, that's probably the number one thing people care about, right? They want to go to someone who... But there's also an element, I didn't really have this because I know so many docs, but do I trust they're going to do the right thing for me? And most docs do, but we read about stories where people are overprescribing and this and that. And, and it's the same thing in finance. It's even much worse because at least in medicine, sort of the industry is hopefully built by people who have an altruistic, I want to help patients. And the industry itself is geared towards what's best for the patient. In finance, it is not. And you can go all the way from Wall Street, just watch, read the book, The Big Short, or go watch that movie. You're going to come out of there and go, I can't trust anybody in the world of finance, <laughs> right? Yeah. I can't even trust, they were ripping off their own clients. And this is, these are like Goldman Sachs and the big, they're taking the other side of bets, recommending their clients do one thing and then doing it the other thing with their own money. So that makes it even harder. One of the elements that I think is really important, and my brother, who's not a client, cardiologist, but I said, you got to use a firm like ours is one that's built on transparency. Because to me, when I give a talk, you can think, you know, all your listeners, they're pretty clear with X and Y axis, but they imagine X, Y axis and just a line that goes from the origin straight at a 45 degree angle up and to the right. And on the, on the, the top, well, one side is transparency and the other is trust. You need to understand how a financial advisor makes money. It's gotta be extremely clear what, and it should be out in the open. Like for us, we charge a consulting fee. If we're doing some planning for somebody, it's very clear. It's a flat fee. If there's an insurance product, we make a commission, very transparent about that. And if we're managing assets, we get a fee that's charged every quarter. And it's very clear what that fee is. But that's not true of many firms. And whether we get to it today or not, in our books, we have questions to ask a potential advisor, right? So if you're sitting down, what are the questions you should ask? And the first one is, how do you make money? Because then you can better evaluate recommendations and say, is this recommendation good for me, the client, or is it good for them, the advisor, or is it somewhere in between, right? But if you don't understand or you're shy about asking how an advisor gets paid, or if it's not clear, it seems confusing, and there's lots of disclosures and disclaimers, you got to read four pages of disclosures to figure out how the firm makes money, that should raise a red flag because it's not transparent. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And one of the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier was, was at least you just briefly mentioned it, were the different ways that you can, that some of the advisors make an income, right? So one yeah. of the ways that you said was 
if they're managing assets, they may get a percentage of the total assets that they've managed. And that's like on a yearly basis. Is that correct? Basically, I mean, there are different ways to do it, but like in our firm, which is pretty standard, is it's a, let's just call it, and again, we have clients who pay a little bit more, most don't, and we have plenty of clients who pay a fair amount less, but let's just call it 1%. So yep. if we were managing a million dollars on 1%, we charge 10,000. And let's assume that that million doesn't change at all, but it does over, over uh, a year, right? It goes up and down, et cetera, based on all the investments. But we charge on a quarterly basis. Most firms will do that. We charge okay. in arrears, meaning we charge after the quarter's done. A lot, of, a lot of firms charge at the outset, like January 1. They For the quarter, they'll charge the fee that comes out. Then we don't charge until March 31st or 30th, whatever the last day of March is, in that scenario. Okay. So that's one way is your, that 1%, I've seen that number many places. Yeah. I guess that's, that may be the baseline or so. so yeah, example, it's kind of industry standard. Yeah. So 1 million bucks, 10,000. So over 10 years, if they manage telling $10 million, it's 100,000 per se, or whatever that, that 1% is. Right. And so that's one way. The other way you mentioned was a, just a consulting fee. Is that like an hourly fee or just a flat rate? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of unique to our firm. We have a whole diagnostic process that we've developed. It's one of the things when I left the practice of law that I wanted to give for physicians is a diagnostic process where a doc could say, listen, I want you to look at my asset protection, look at my tax, or give me a second opinion on investments, et cetera. And we have that. A lot of firms don't. That's pretty unique. We kind of change. We try to split up diagnostic versus treatment. Treatment is, okay, we're going to manage your assets and do these things, implement. Diagnostic, you're just going to get our, our professional opinion and our time and expertise. We charge, it's a flat fee, but went per client, we figure out what that is. We want to, and we will be rolling this out, maybe by the time this even airs, but certainly in 2023, something that I think would be applicable to young docs like you and, and some of your listeners, which is a, a flat fee monthly a subscription model so that there'd be an offering that, so for clients who may not be able to afford some of the other things that we do, but they want to work with us and they think we're a great firm, we want to roll out a subscription model, monthly basis, flat fee, so people know what it's going to be and they get a certain level of service and a certain uh, level of access that is tailored to that. So that's that's to come. And maybe you'll, I'll come on another time in the future and explain how that works. Okay. And then the last, or one of the other things that you mentioned are just planners that are just commission-based. So say, for example, they just are sales. So I've seen some people say most just kind of like salespeople per se, where you just get commissions based on if they sell X, like life insurance plan or disability plan or whatever else it may be. Yeah, that's right. So in the insurance world, okay, it's, it, it basically, that's how it works. It works on commission. So if I, if I work with you on, let's say a disability policy, I'm going to get a commission based on that. And that could be something every year a premium is paid, I get a, a, a payout or one time or one time and then a little bit after that. And that varies significantly by the type of insurance it is. That it would include like auto insurance or homeowners and that kind of thing, as well as the company and the policy. So it, it is, that is, insurance is a commission world. The thing that I think a lot of phys physicians, especially young docs, don't realize is that world also exists in investments, meaning I was mentioning this fee at 1%. And that's true for certain types of firms, typically what are called registered investment advisors like ours, typically what fiduciaries are. We can talk about that in a minute. But there's also the broker world of investment advisors where they get paid on a commission basis 
So there's a real tough incentive. We, our firm, and we like to think, and I think it's true that when we're charging a percentage of assets called 1%, once we know we're getting that fee and the client knows that, now everything we do in terms of the investments we choose is for the client's best interest, meaning is it going to perform the way we uh, that it fits in their portfolio? Are the fees low on the actual investment itself? And again, I don't want to get too deep, but the difference between an ETF and a mutual fund, ETFs are much less expensive. So for our firm, we're choosing a lot more ETFs. Anytime we think an ETF can do the job of a mutual fund, we're going to choose an ETF for the client. Why? Because we don't make any money on that, right? We want to make it as cheap for the client as possible, making our fee but if I was a broker and I was choosing a mutual fund, I might get a piece of that. I might get a, a commission on that, right? So it's not surprising you put 10 docs together and 10 are using fiduciaries who are, are paying a fee. They're probably going to have a lot more ETFs than 10 docs are using brokers, right? And that's not clear. That's not transparent. You don't know how much they made on that. So commissions in the investment world is the way Wall Street's always worked, Okay. This idea of a fee-based as something that's come up over the last 20 years, which for you may seem a long time, but I've been in <laughs> business longer than 20 years. So I know when basically that dominated, and it still does, major firms, and these are friends of mine, but firms like Morgan Stanley, any of the Wall Street firms basically are still built on that, Merrill Lynch, et cetera. They're changing slowly, but they also have proprietary products. So not only might they get a commission, they might be very incentivized to put you in a Merrill Lynch fund, right? Mm. Where that commission would be higher. I tell clients all the time, if I went to a physician and you worked by meaning your office and your business card said Pfizer, and I went to see you about a shoulder issue and you said, what? I don't think I need to do surgery, but I think what you need is this Pfizer product. I might say, well, is he doing this because the Pfizer product is best for me or best for him? Right. Right. Maybe generic's better, but he gets paid on the Pfizer. That seems crazy to even think about in medicine, right? It's just not the way it works. Well, welcome yeah. to the world of finance. That is the way it works, right? Mm. Those bad incentives are throughout and, and, and kickbacks and commissions are there. So just to, I just wanted to dive down a little bit on that commission thought, which yeah, insurance, you can't really avoid it, yep. okay? Can't avoid it. But in investments, you can avoid it. And in most cases, and, and if you read our books, I, I think the argument is to avoid that. There's really no reason to, that's an old model that is firm-centric. It's not client-centric. And, and what is, since you mentioned it, what is fiduciary? We got a lot of people that have only read biology and medicine for all their lives and getting introduced to this finance world. What does that mean? Yeah, so fiduciary is a legal term. It basically means a, a person, a position that has to put somebody else's position first. I got to put my you're a fiduciary, essentially. I mean, as a physician, you're a fiduciary to your patients. Now, you wouldn't use that word because fiduciary has to do with finance, but you basically have an oath to do what's best for your patients, right? An attorney is a fiduciary for their clients. I'm also a lawyer, right? I wear that hat. I have liability if I don't do what's best for my clients. I have to put my clients' interests first. But in the finance world, there are two completely different professional standards. There's the fiduciary standard, which is the standard that my firm uses or is under, I shouldn't say uses, that we're, we're judged under. And we can still have liability. We have insurance, et cetera, if we screw up. But our fiduciary duty, meaning we have to put our client's best interest first. That's why I'm, I gave that example of we charge that 1% fee, let's say. Everything else we have to do has to be in the best interest of the client. Okay, well, you could say, well, 
take that to the extreme, then you wouldn't charge the fee, client a fee, any any fee, because you know <laughs> right. isn't that against their their interest? Well, you're allowed to do business, so you're allowed to charge a reasonable fee. Okay, that law allows that, but. Other decisions must be in our client's best interest. And you think, ah, that seems obvious. Why shouldn't every financial advisor do that? Well, there's a whole nother standard, which is the suitability standard. Then if I'm on the suitability standard, I don't do what's best for my clients. I just have to do what's suitable. When you combine that suitability standard really applies to brokers who also get paid as commissions. So now let's just say you had a thousand bucks, right? And you wanted to put it in, we agreed we should put it in a small cap fund, okay? I'm making, I'm making a 1% on that. So I'm making $10 as a fee, right? We're clear on that. Now my decision is what with your $990 should I put you in uh, that's in your best interest? And again, I don't make any money on it. So I'm going to choose like whatever the cheapest or best small cap fund that I think works for you. Fine. That's the fiduciary standard. The suitability standard, you come to me, okay, I'm a broker, I'm subject to suitability standard. I don't charge you a fee, but now I we agree you're going to put the $1,000 into a small cap investment. I might choose one that has a 6% commission, okay? So $940 is going to work for you. I've, I've done the right thing because it's a suitable investment for you. Is it the best? Is it the most best in your best interest? No, but that's not the standard I have to adhere to. I have to adhere to something that's suitable. It's a suitable fund. Yes, I make a 6% commission, which might be the largest commission of 10 funds that I choose, but it's still suitable. You have $940 working for you in that fund. And I and my client has $990 working for them in the fund. You see the difference there? And both of those, both me and the financial advisor who's the who's the under the suitability standard have met our standard. We have no liability. We've done what we're supposed to do. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things that, that I wanted to test base on were the different types of financial advisors. So can you kind of give us an idea of the various types of advisors that are out there on the market? So when we get these get bombarded with these emails, we kind of know how to filter through some people versus other people. Yeah, absolutely. But at first, I'm going to give you something, give you the bad news. All the right. bad news is that they all may use the exact same title, financial advisor. Financial advisor means nothing, right? You don't have to. Now, there are licenses you need to sell securities or sell insurance. I could be insurance licensed. I could be securities licensed. But financial advisor itself, it doesn't mean board certified OBGYN. I know what that means, right? right? When I go to somebody like that, right? So, but I don't know what a financial advisor is. So the problem is all these kind of people I'm going to tell you, they could all on their business cards say financial advisor. That's why you got to. Get educated and learn about this stuff, right? Sure. So the first could be like brokers and banks. So I mentioned broker. That means something under the suitability theory. It means they get paid commissions, et cetera. But when you go to, let's pick on Wells Fargo, since they just, I think, paid a $2 billion fine for ripping off their clients. You guys yeah. can look that up. But yeah. you said to go Wells Fargo. And I do have docs, very smart, successful orthopedic surgeons who use Wells Fargo. So you got to ask why they're doing that. But you go into Wells Fargo Bank or you get Wells Fargo Private Wealth Management, wants to buy you a dinner, send you an email, which I'm sure you'll get. That's going to be brokers and banks generally going to be in the, fidu- in the uh, non-fiduciary, in the, in the broker model, in the suitability standard. But they're very popular. They do a lot of advertising. They got a lot of money to spend. Your brokers and banks. So you got your brokers and banks. That's number one. 
Number two is insurance agents. And some insurance agents just do insurance, like they might just, just do disability insurance or just do life insurance or just do both of those. A lot of people who are doing like auto and homeowners, they're just doing that. That's called property and casualty insurance as opposed to health, life, and, and disability, things like that. They may also manage money as well. And it's not clear. They might be an insurance agent, get commissions on that, but also have a fee basis on their investment advisory. You got to ask the questions. You can have fee-only financial advisors. And that sounds great. And, and many of them are, are ethical and they have a good model. They don't even manage your money. Okay. You just pay them a fee to help you design a portfolio. And I think White Co Investor has a bunch of those on their site. The, my issue with them is not their business model or their ethics or anything they do for the clients. They're just very mom and pop shops. And they often, they are giving investments to what you're paying from a, a fee point of view. They don't really have access to a lot of good proprietary, like private investments and hedge funds and private equity funds and some of the things that may not be relevant for you guys today. But as you start building wealth and you want more investments in alternatives, and when you're out there a 15-year Otopeak surgeon, they, you may outgrow a, a, a firm like that, right? That you want yeah. like some more sophisticated stuff. There's automated investment management. And we use that for some young docs who want to come to us. And that may be part of our rollout when we do the subscription model. You might, if you pay attention to the industry at all, they're called robo-advisors. They're very inexpensive. It's all online. You don't deal with the human at all. You put in your risk tolerance and it kind of it gives you a model and you put and you can start with like a hundred bucks, right? A thousand bucks you can start. And so it's a good tool. We have one that we have access to for our clients. And for our clients who have small amounts of investments, we can put them in there, but it's purely an investment vehicle. It's, there's no advice to it and there's no human element to it. Okay. okay. There's registered investment advisors who are firms like ours, who are fiduciary standard, who use outside custodians. I mean, we don't hold the assets ourselves. We, they, they, you can go online at schwab.com or TD or whatever. You, so we're not holding the assets. And typically they're almost all fiduciaries under the fee model. So that's obviously pretty popular. And then there's a bunch of other people I would all throw in kind of a sleeve advisor, meaning they manage a sleeve or a piece of a, of a portfolio. These would be your hedge funds. Maybe some of your buddies went to work for them who didn't go to law school, or who didn't go to medical school, private equity funds, venture capital. Typically, a client's not going to put all their money in those because they're tied up. They're very illiquid. They're more risky, higher returns. But an orthopedic surgeon might say, listen, I have 10% of my uh, investments with this hedge fund or 10% of my investments in this venture capital fund. That makes sense. Uh, but those people typically aren't doing full service advice. They're just doing what they do, very narrow, but uh, very successful. So those are kind of, again, in our chapter on this in one of our books, uh, we go into this in more detail, but that's kind of a the spectrum of what's out there. Yeah. And just to do a quick recap, you talked about broker bank, brokers and like banks, like when you go to yep. the, the bank or somebody sitting there and say, oh, well, let me tell you about this. And they're the ones that typically can get paid off of some type of commission and they help with the bank, et cetera. You have your insurance agents, which sells some type of insurance disability or whatever else yep. it may be. You have your fee only financial advisors that you talked about. Yep. You talked about automated investments or kind of like this kind of robo advisors, which yep. is not necessarily a human component to it more robotic or just an automated algorithm uh, all algorithm, algorithm based yeah yep you talked about registered investment advisors it's kind of like something like your your law firm your firm not law firm excuse me yep kind of your 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 business and you also talk about like these 
in general, sleeve advisors like the hedge funds and the venture capitalists. Yeah. And exactly. that, that's like, those are our types. And, and what, what just really quickly, like you see emails that'll say CFP and these, these different acronyms after their, yeah. their names, which one, where do those, where do those fall? And like, which ones of those should we be like, okay, that's one, but that's probably the one that has the most like experience that I should kind of go with. Yeah, it's a great question. And there's probably a bunch out there that I don't even haven't even heard of, like certified. Right. I mean, I know we had somebody on my podcast, actually, not even part of our firm, but we thought it was valuable. It was a certified like student loan expert. I can't remember what the certification was, but that sounded pretty valuable to me. Somebody who, if you really have questions on student loans and would be somebody to, to, to go talk to. The CFP is the one you'll see the most, uh, which is certified financial. And that involves coursework. People do it over six months or so and continuing education, et cetera. I don't have a CFP. I do have an MBA, which is two years, but it's an academic, not a professional designation. I think CFP is certainly the most common. There's a bunch of insurance ones like CLU and CLFC. Honestly, there's more acronyms. possibly. <laughs> I think if you're going to work with an advisor, they should have something, okay? They should have some designation. But I think you could find very good folks who don't have a CFP who would be great. And, and you can find a CFPs who don't measure up and vice versa, meaning it's not like board certified orthopedic surgeon where there's a certain level of competence and expertise, which is the baseline, right? Okay. It's probably you, you tell me, find a board certified orthopedic surgeon. You got a knee issue, find someone who really does does knees. And, and that's a pretty good start. Anybody that, to me, I would say some license, but I think more important than the designation is their experience and their expertise. Especially today, you don't need someone down the street from you. Again, we have 1,500 physicians with Zoom and we were using Zoom well before COVID. Our clients are literally in 50 states. So I don't get to meet the guy in Alaska, but I can do great work for him for 20 years. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Don't don't feel like they have to be in your backyard. Yeah. And David, this has been great and really informative, but I always like to leave some of our listeners with some actionable items that they can do. And one, you mentioned one of the questions a little bit earlier, but what other, let's say, can you give us under two or three questions that people or our listeners can use to ask a financial advisor when they meet with him or her? You mentioned yeah. how you get paid is one but like two or three other ones that, that they could ask. Yeah. So I think how you get paid slash how does your firm get paid, right? right. I want to know how your because sometimes the firm has an incentive, let's say with a certain mutual fund family and the firm gets paid and, and the, the advisor can kind of squeal out of it by saying, oh, I don't make it. You want to know, A, uh, how do you and how does your firm get paid on anything that related to me? Okay. Okay. That's number one. We talked about. The second one is sort of related to what we're talking about. I think you should be come straight out and say, are you subject to the fiduciary duty to me or are you held to the suitability standard? So fiduciary or suitability. That, and if you get a long-winded, lots of disclaimers and lawyer leaves answer, that's not a good call. That's not a good sign, right? Mm -hmm. Client asks me that, I'm like, we're fiduciary to you. We have to put your best interest, period. That's it. Okay. Short, short answer. Okay. That's number two. The other thing we didn't talk about yet, but is custodian. When you're working with someone who's going to in do investments, the custodian is where the assets are actually held. And when your firm or when the investment firm also is the custodian, you have the Bertie Madoff problem. 
which, and, and that's just one example of uh, uh, what they can do is they actually have access to your money with mm. no checks on it, right? Okay. And it can be that nefarious, or it could also just mean uh, a red flag and turn to potential kickback. So like, let's just say you went to, and again, I'm not, I mean, yes, Wells Fargo, let's pick on them because they just paid a multi-billion dollar <laughs> fine. Yeah. But they weren't like stealing from their clients. That's different. They were just kind of ripping them off and over, overcharging them. But when you, if you choose Wells Fargo Wealth Management to manage your money, obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but those assets are going to be held at Wells Fargo. And what that means is what's the, what's the fee that Wells Fargo is charging as a custodian to Wells Fargo, the uh, wealth management division for doing that, right? There's, Dollars flow back and forth, and it's not so clear. Even for me, who's a lawyer and an MBA with 25 years to figure it out, mm. right? It's not so clear. It's not so obvious. And so asking the question, do you also, does your firm also act as the custodian? With OJM as an example, we don't, right? Yes, we have an app. You can check your balance on the OJM app if you're doing that. But our clients can also go to Schwab.com or the Schwab app. And if they d decide to get rid of OJM, they want to fire us, those assets are still at Schwab. And Schwab, which is the largest custodian in the world with I don't know how many trillions of dollars there, has all its risk management and fraud ma management and fraud prevention. They don't have to rely on a small firm like OJM to figure all that out, right? They feel a lot more comfortable at the dollars at the largest custodian in the world. So the question is, do you use your own firm as a custodian, or do you use an outside custodian? I think that's an important question as well. Great. Those are three three or four great, great questions there. Uh, I think this podcast was extremely informative. And at least now, hopefully when our listeners listen or they get these emails and, and they start talking to different financial advisors, they can have kind of have an idea of how to start to navigate this this world. And 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 David, if you could, can you let the people know, you mentioned it a little bit a little bit earlier, but how can people learn more about kind of your firm and, and kind of just learn a little bit more about you and your business and, and what you have going on? Sure. So OJM, that's Mary, OJMgroup.com. Uh, go there. Uh, you can learn all about us. There's a whole phys four physicians button there. And that could also take you to our Wealth Planning for the Modern Physician podcast. We have a free ease newsletter that comes out at least once a month, plus a podcast that comes out every two weeks. And uh, your favorite uh, podcast host, Wendell, will be on at some point in season oh, two yeah. or three. Excuse me, we're already in season three. So season three or four, we'll see where, where we get them in. And I would encourage everybody to get our books because everything I talked about today, including these questions and more that you can sit down with your advisor and lots of cool graphics. And again, everything from what is a stock, what is a bond, what is a hedge fund, questions that smart physicians may be afraid to ask, but don't really know the answer to, they should get the two books, Wealth Management Made Simple and Wealth Planning for the Modern Physician. We can set it up with a nailed it 23 code. So Wendell, any way you can get that out to people in show notes or some kind of link, we can let people take advantage of that offer. Awesome. Well, well great. We'll have the link to that in the description. For those that are listening, thank you all for listening. David, again, thank you for coming on and being a guest. And we'll we'll have another episode coming shortly and then another one on your podcast. So yes. uh, looking forward to speaking with you a couple more times. And uh, until next time, everybody. And again, David, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Hope that you all enjoyed our episode with David Mandel. We talked about a lot of things. I hope that you learned a lot. And just as we mentioned in the podcast before, if you want a copy of his book for free, just go to ojmbookstore.com and enter the promo code NAILEDIT23 at checkout. Or you could also text NAILEDIT23 to 844-418-1212 and click the link in the reply text in order to order. All right. So we're getting free stuff, free books. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, until next time. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.